an ironic media production. Visit us at I-R-O-N-I-C-K media.com. You quit trying. Scarlet! You'll never win if you give in. But I just can't do it. Can you ride a bike? Well, sure I can. But could you at first? No, I had to practice for weeks. I think I'm getting the hang of it. That's because you hung in there. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Not all of us are endowed with natural gifts and talents in everything. And even the most talented individuals need consistent practice to improve, refine, and perfect. I studied classical piano for almost 14 years, starting at the age of four. During that time, my skills improved, but only because I dedicated myself to practicing every day. I kept at it because it was something that I had a passion for and I enjoyed doing. By the time I was a high school senior... I was practicing for an hour and a half each day, and I enjoyed every minute of it. One of the reasons I got as good as I did is something my piano teacher once told me that I took to heart. She said, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. As I grew older, I forgot the amount of dedication one needs to perfect a craft, but doing this podcast has reminded me. It has been eight years since the premiere of Arts Review and Commentary, and on this episode of ARC, I'm going to go over what I've seen and learned over the years, and I'll read some of my favorite reviews I've written during that time. This is ARC. God blessed To the movies, to good movies, to every possible kind. Make it so. Wow, my dragons! No idiot! Welcome to Earth. Stick around. No slices for white. Clever girl. And they mostly come at night. Mostly. I'm 37! Are you the key master? I'm Omar. Who the hell are you? Omar! Omar coming down! Omar Omar coming down! Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Arts Review and Commentary. I'm your host, Omar Latiri, and thank you very much for listening. Visit artsreviewandcommentary.com and omarlatiri.com and click the Amazon button to shop and help support this show. Don't forget to follow this show on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms at Arc Reviews. Now, most of my reviews are written out and recorded and not extemporaneously spoken, but for this episode, I'm going to try to do a little something different. I'm going to try and talk about the last eight years without typing everything out beforehand. And with some clever editing, I'll be able to remove awkward pauses and stitch together the remainder. And for some of this episode, I will be reading from reviews I've written. But for the most part, I'm going to try to speak as I recollect what I've learned. So, on September 19th, 2013, I uploaded my first episode of Arts Review and Commentary. Uh, I actually didn't upload it. It was uploaded on the Realm Network, founded by Mark Ronick, Buzz Burbank, and Lowell Melser. On that episode, I talked about the new Netflix streaming series House of Cards and Arrested Development, 
and the new way of releasing entire seasons of television all at once. Streaming had just become the new thing. And it's hard to believe that it was eight years ago that people started binging. And binging did not become a word associated with an eating disorder. It became associated with a television watching disorder, if you can call it that. And now, eight years later, it has become a way of consuming media in order to, I would say, decrease FOMO. For those of you who don't know what FOMO is, it means fear of missing out. And it's also a way that I was able to catch up on seasons of television that I had never seen before. Stuff that had been out for years, but hadn't been available at the time that they went to air. When I listened back to that first episode, I realize how much has changed in not only the way that I record the podcast, but also in how much has changed in society. I used a lot of audio from an interview or a presentation that Kevin Spacey did, and use of that clip has not aged well. Then again, a lot of things have come to light over the past eight years that have not aged well. But I don't regret using it because it was necessary to show what it was like at that time. Now, I started the podcast because obviously there were things that I wanted to say. But one of the main reasons, among a lot of others, was that I noticed how seriously people took art, especially movies and televisions and their own tastes. Around that time, uh, Ben Affleck was harshly criticized for his being cast as Batman Bruce Wayne in the upcoming Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. I don't think it had its title at the time. And I just remember everybody going ape over his casting. And I was thinking, wow, why are people taking this so seriously? Why are people taking this casting so much to heart? And I had to write about it. Then I figured, well, why not try and do what everybody and their grandmother was doing and get a podcast and try and do that? So that was my original pitch to Mark Ronick and the guys was this whole spiel about people taking Ben Affleck too seriously, or the casting, rather, of it too seriously. And so that's what I sent, this little clip of me talking about why it was important and why it mattered to these people who were taking things way too seriously. And I included that clip in an episode a few years ago when I did a whole series roundup on the superhero movies that came that year, one of which was Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. Another thing that I wanted to explore and something that I think I've done pretty successfully on this show was to analyze the recurring themes that permeated art and not just movies and television. Less than a year after the first episode of ARC aired, 
I did an episode called Frozen in Time, and I explored the themes of characters who had been frozen in time, from Buck Rogers to Fry from Futurama, but I also went all the way back to Rip Van Winkle. And by exploring how all of these themes have been described throughout literature and all different forms of art, I realized that it wasn't just about movies and TV, that I could go into other various art forms and find how these themes could be weaved through. And as the years went on, it further confirmed my belief that art is for everyone. I never really believed that only certain groups of people had access or were allowed access to certain art forms, that only certain people could create, produce, or consume certain art forms. I remember something that Roger Ebert had said a while ago, and I can't remember if it was in a review or an interview, but he was talking about a particular movie that he didn't like, and he was comparing it to something he was eating. And that, I'm not sure whether he said this or not, but the comparison of watching a movie and eating a meal made me realize that the culinary arts and the visual arts were all art forms. And that you don't have to be a chef to know what tastes good. And that all gets thrown in together with taste. So some people have a distinguished palate and and others don't. But that doesn't mean that what tastes good is necessarily what's good and vice versa. And I've talked about this in other episodes that if you only watch independent movies that offer these challenging uh, ideas and you avoid all of the mass-produced fare, or if you only watch the mass-produced fare and don't watch any of these other more independent, out-of-the-mainstream, challenging stories, then you're denying yourself a full, broad experience. And it's not fair to you, and it's not fair to the consumers or the artists, or anybody in general. And when you're denied those experiences, you become actually a less rounded individual. Folks who only watch elite stuff or only consume elite forms of entertainment, I consider them to be out of touch and with a very, very narrow scope and frame of mind. And that keeps getting confirmed each and every year when... My buddy Jordan Rose and I do the Academy Awards show where we make our picks of the Academy Award nominations. Now, the first couple of years we did it, I wasn't sure what to expect. I wasn't sure if we were going to turn it into a game or a wager, and I never really seriously considered that. But I did notice that when I selected something, it was done out of a guess of not what I thought should win, but what I thought would win based on the attitudes of the Academy at the time. And you notice that, first of all, not 
only are the nominees not necessarily picked out of a sense of quality, but they're selected out of the zeitgeist of the time. For example, Phantom Thread is a movie that I don't think barely anyone watched, and I hated it. I honestly hated Phantom Thread. I thought it was one of the most boring movies that I've ever seen, and it had nothing to it. Now, it was a critical darling because it had Daniel Day-Lewis, and it had a whole bunch of subtext that I didn't find particularly subtle. I find mainstream movies sometimes have more subtle ways of introducing subtext. One of the more recent ones is the most recent adaptation of Candyman. And yes, I think Candyman was a better movie than Phantom Thread. No disrespect intended to Daniel Day-Lewis and the other actors in the movie, but man, Phantom Thread was boring. Let me see if I could find what I wrote in my review. Twelve seconds later. Okay, here's what I wrote back in 2017. Daniel Day-Lewis portrays a man-child of such dull proportions that even though his acting is stellar, his character drains the life out of any scene he's in. I also wrote that Vicky Creeps' character becomes nothing more than an artsy version of Bella Swan or Anastasia Steele. This movie will be quickly forgotten. And honestly, I hope it has. I hope no one watches this movie. So throughout the years, I thought about just reading the reviews that I've written as part of the show, but I also realized that simply doing movies wouldn't encompass what art was all about. But I have to confess that movies and TV are really where my passion lies. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm ever going to ignore literature or dance or especially theater, but I've always felt that movies and television are the most accessible form of art for anybody around the world. It ties different cultures together through this singular medium of visual entertainment. It's one of those things that is, in today's world, easily distributed. And it's a way to see and hear how different cultures produce art without having to actually go there. After all, going there can be pretty expensive, and only those with a certain amount of privilege have that ability. That's why I believe that paying $15 to see a movie is a much better investment than spending $100 to get a ticket to see a show on Broadway. And that rift or schism between stage and screen is kind of what I see in the rift between independent movies and mainstream movies. That an independent movie isn't better just because it's independent. Sure, independent films are allowed to take more chances because they don't have to worry about a huge backlash from different world governments like China, for example. But that doesn't mean that the more mainstream movies have nothing better to offer. And that's why I wanted to do this show. I wanted to address all of the good and all of the bad that can be found in any art form, regardless of what art form it is. 
So when I started this show, my daughter was only five years old, and I was hoping to introduce her to the various art forms and TV shows and movies that I liked. It never occurred to me that I would get into the things that she liked, and throughout the years, it's been a very rewarding experience. I was able to show her movies by Steven Spielberg, and she was able to get me into Minecraft. Now, that's not to say that I play Minecraft or watch My Little Pony, but I do have an appreciation for those things. I was never really expecting to do interviews in this show. I didn't really know how to conduct them, but of the few interviews that I have conducted, I've been really proud of the vast majority of them, if not all of them. I didn't know exactly what interviewing would be like. I've been interviewed before, but I've never really been the one interviewing until I did this show. And as I've done episodes with uh, the Bechdel Test or Mad Men, and it was really fun to hear other people's points of view. Another reason why I wanted to do this show was to show that it's okay for people to have other points of view and agree or disagree with you in terms of taste and art forms. This show also helped me hone my love of history. And when I studied history, it wasn't so much the facts that I really enjoyed learning about, although that was enjoyable, but it was the process of research. Too often people hear something and it gets passed down through the years and people think that that's, oh, that's what it's supposed to be. Like for example, the yellow brick road in The Wizard of Oz is an allegory to the gold standard and that the Emerald City was about the almighty dollar. and. That's not true. Or like the 12 days of Christmas, uh, it was a sort of mnemonic device for early Christians to remember Christian symbology, which isn't true. It's just a song. The Wizard of Oz is just a story. There isn't that much subtext. Ring Around the Rosie is not about the plague. And just like those stories have gone down through the years with these misleading narratives, there have been like urban legends like, there was this person who was killed in the making of The Wizard of Oz or Three Men and a Baby, and you can see their ghosts in certain shots, and those things also aren't true. As the years have gone on, it's been harder for me to come up with ideas. I've had a lot of suggestions, but they didn't really fit the tone of the show. I remember one of the first suggestions I get was, do an episode about Doctor Who, but there really wasn't much to go on besides telling people what fans didn't already know and non-fans wouldn't be interested in hearing. If I were to talk about Doctor Who, what would I talk about? Give a primer on what Doctor Who was about? It just wasn't part of what this show was all about, which was about exploring themes that permeate all different types of media, not just one particular television show, regardless of how impactful that television show actually is. Of course, I would then do a retrospective on Star Trek, but I believe that Star Trek had much more impact and continues to have much more impact than Doctor Who does. Sometimes I've done episodes focusing on particular people, and that has led to... <laughs> that led to one of the worst episodes, if not the worst episode that I did, which was the second episode, and that was about Joss Whedon. And that was just basically a hagiography of Joss Whedon. 
Now, I'm still a fan of Joss Whedon's work, despite what everything has been going on in the news in the past couple of years relating to his directorial style and his negative interactions with actors. And that's another thing that I also wanted to explore in the show was the separation of art from artist. Is that acceptable? Can you do that? Now, Joss Whedon isn't exactly Bill Cosby, but at the time, I was totally all over Joss Whedon's work. And this is when Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. had just come out, a year after the first Avengers movie, which was an amazing experience. Still liking a particular performer or creator and just going nuts about that particular one is sort of like preaching to the choir. And it can get really boring because, again, like with fans of Doctor Who, if you like it, then you know what's going to be said. And if you don't like it, you probably don't care for it. I found it much more interesting to delve into talking about Bill Cosby when the movie Spotlight came out, about analyzing the good that a monster can provide, whether it is a person or an organization. As the years went on, I became more and more adept at pulling audio from certain sources and learning how to mix and use background music, and it it helped make the show sound a bit more professional. One of my favorite episodes that I did came out last year, which was the ranking of the 23 movies of the MCU, and I ripped a whole bunch of audio using every movie's title theme as an introduction to where that movie ranked, and it was such a joy to do. And of course it was. It was about superheroes. And for those of you who are wondering why superheroes matter that much to me, I did an entire episode of Why Superheroes Matter. Over the past eight years, I would say I've watched around a thousand movies. I'm not exaggerating. I've averaged about a hundred movies a year. Some new releases, some movies that I hadn't seen before and watched in all various formats. In the movie theater, on demand, streaming, DVD, Blu-ray, etc. Not only have I watched movies, but I've also watched television shows. I've read books, not as much. I've seen plays, not as much. And listened to albums, of course, not as much as movies and TV. But... Every day there has been a steady consumption of art. I'm looking through some of my reviews that I've written in the past uh, eight years, and let me see what I find are my favorites. 20 minutes later. Here's one snippet that I wrote about The Green Knight earlier in 2021. I wrote, There are those who will enjoy this movie because of the visuals, the casting of Dev Patel as a knight at the round table, or the general mood of the film. There are also those who might enjoy a kale, eggplant, and eel smoothie because they're consuming healthy foods. I think that smoothie is garbage, and I think this movie is garbage. So that was a 1 out of 5 star review for The Green Knight. Here's something I noticed. The reviews I had for the Joss Whedon cut of the Justice League and the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League. Uh, from the Joss Whedon version, back in 2017, I rated that 3 out of 5 stars. 
I wrote, This version of the Justice League tries and almost succeeds, but falters because the differences between the members of the League are not really well known. Like everything in this movie, there is good and bad, and part of the bad and good is Danny Elfman's score. He reuses his 1989 Batman theme as well as John Williams' Superman theme, but his Justice League theme is so similar to his theme from Avengers Age of Ultron that it seems lazy. And here's what I wrote for Zack Snyder's Justice League. I wrote that, I wrote, imagine getting ready to eat a steak. Joss Whedon's Justice League is the steak you thought you were going to have that ended up being turned into a hamburger. The meat is still there, but it's been ground up by a different chef who decided to add his signature slices of avocado and pineapple. Zack Snyder's Justice League is the steak, a 72-ounce sirloin cooked medium, mildly seasoned, and takes four mopey hours to eat. So I gave Zack Snyder's Justice League two out of five stars. Here's a pan of 2017's The Mummy that starred Tom Cruise. I gave it one out of five stars, and I said, There's bad, and then there's lazy. This movie is a perfect example of how a profit-driven mentality blinds creators to what makes escapist entertainment appealing. This movie isn't fun, funny, or fantastical. The script is written with the sole purpose of launching a franchise that no one asked for, forgetting that the best way to launch a franchise is to create something that can stand alone on its own first and then worry about bringing in other parts later. In contrast, here's what I wrote for Avengers Endgame. I of course rated that 5 out of 5 stars back in 2019. I wrote, The key to this movie's success is the respect it pays to the entries that came before it. It pays respect by treating the other movies as reference points to the degree that even characters' orchestral theme songs are heard. These themes aren't recycled, they're paid homages. The first movie I ever reviewed after starting this podcast was Gravity, back in 2013. I gave that 5 out of 5 stars. That movie and 12 Years a Slave were the odds-on favorites to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. Uh, 12 Years a Slave, of course, won. But I was kind of pulling for Gravity just because I thought that had more rewatch value than 12 Years a Slave. 12 Years a Slave was a fantastic movie and deserved to win. I just preferred Gravity a little more. In my review of Gravity, I wrote, Not since Life of Pi has a movie used 3D to advance its storytelling, and indeed Gravity's story shares many thematic similarities to Life of Pi, such as isolation, perseverance, and making the best out of tragedy, but Gravity takes place in an environment unfamiliar to all but a certain group of privileged few and shows us just how terrifying space can be. For 12 Years a Slave, I wrote, It's not an anecdote, not an exaggeration, but the defining part of what made this country into what it is today. 12 Years a Slave will hopefully allow all Americans, young and old, internalize that. I have no doubt that this movie will be used in classrooms for generations to come. Another movie that I said would be taught in classrooms was Inside Out. I gave that 5 out of 5 stars back in 2015. And I said that Inside Out was a masterpiece of storytelling, metaphor, and imagination. I cannot recall a movie that has so thoroughly captured and entertained both kids and adults alike and moved them all in such similar ways. On the other end of the Pixar spectrum is Cars 3. I didn't review Cars 2, 
But this review of Cars 3 was from 2017. I gave that movie 2 out of 5 stars. I considered Cars 3 a very ironic movie to exist because the movie was about how getting back to basics was better than going through technology. And that it's ironic because Cars 2 and 3 was all about profit and that Pixar Studios itself is about how technology redefined motion picture entertainment since the release of Toy Story in 1995. If any studio should embrace the wonders and possibilities of technological advancement, it's frickin' Pixar. Here's a review from one of the worst movies I've ever seen, The Emoji Movie. If I could have given it zero stars, I would have, but Rotten Tomatoes wouldn't let me give it uh, zero stars, so I had to put a half star in. And I said, There are movies so bad that you want to shoot it in the face for one of two reasons. Number one, they are diseased and must be destroyed lest their infection spreads to unwitting viewers. Or two, they are actual evil and their destruction prevents the world from being a worse place. This movie is somewhere between those two. On one hand, you have voice actors like James Corden and Maya Rudolph actually performing to the best of their ability making this movie's destruction a mercy killing for them. On the other hand, you have Sir Patrick Stewart willingly playing a emoji, meaning he willingly walked into a recording studio and read the emoji lines, cashed a paycheck with the words emoji in the memo line, and then bought some through his emoji cash. It's not quite on the level of buying conflict diamonds, but it sure feels close. Now rating the emoji movie with a low rating isn't exactly a hot take. Let me see if I can find something that I liked and no one else did, or I didn't like and everyone else did. Oh, yet the most obvious has to be Call Me By Your Name. So that was a critical darling. I gave that one and a half stars. And I said, there is a wonderful love story in this movie, and there are wonderful lessons to be learned. Unfortunately, the potential beauty within this story is lost in one of the most boring, trite, and unromantic movies I've ever seen. Now, reading this years later, I think I was a little bit too harsh in calling it unromantic, but I still feel it was really, really boring. Here's a five-star review that I wrote for 2017's Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. I wrote, What can I say? I had a great time in this movie in a way that I had a great time seeing Jurassic Park. No, there wasn't anything revolutionary in the realm of visual effects, but what was here were performances that were so honest and consistent that my belief was completely suspended and I actually bought Dwayne Johnson as a skinny nerdy kid. I also wrote, I hope that this movie finds a place as a classic adventure that will be fondly looked upon by 20-somethings 10 years from now. As I'm looking through all of these reviews, I am seeing stuff that I can't even remember watching. Here's one back from 2018, starring Amy Schumer, a movie called I Feel Pretty. I have no idea what that was all about. And I gave that one and a half stars, so obviously not that good. And later on that year, I saw Super Troopers 2, and I gave that three and a half stars. What was I thinking? I remember enjoying it, but not that much. Uh, here are some reviews that I wonder if they really held up. Now, the Star Wars movies. I rated Solo a 2 out of 5, and I rated Rogue One 
5 out of 5 stars. For Star Wars The Force Awakens, I gave that 4.5 out of 5. For The Last Jedi, I gave that 4 out of 5. And for Rise of Skywalker, I gave that 3 out of 5. And I'm wondering if I would change anything of that. I probably would knock Rise of Skywalker down to 2.5. I would knock Last Jedi down to 3. And I would knock Force Awakens down to 4. But come to think of it, no, I probably keep Force Awakens at four and a half because the only reason I'm knocking it down to four is because of the impact that less that Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker had on the entire franchise. And you can throw Solo, a Star Wars story, in there as well. That those three movies. Solo, The Last Jedi, and Rise of Skywalker were so disappointing to a lot of people that it had this backwards effect of affecting the movies that came before it, especially The Force Awakens. The thing about memory is that it also affects the ratings and vice versa. Movies that I consider to be memorable don't have to be good. In fact, some of the most memorable ones are some of the worst ones I've seen. Because they were so bad, they were really memorable. One of those movies that was so bad but stuck in memory, apart from movies like the Emoji Movie, was Cats back in 2019. I gave that half a star out of five. I wrote, Jennifer Hudson, the Academy Award-winning actress who belted out, and I am telling you, from Dreamgirls, grinds the movie to a halt with what should be the easiest song of Andrew Lloyd Webber's to nail. Memory, which should be heartbreakingly inspirational, is now such a snot-dripping, vocally inconsistent, blubbering mess of a performance that it has no chance of redeeming the disaster that is the entire movie before it. A memorable movie that I gave 5 out of 5 stars was Hustlers from 2019, I wrote that Constance Wu and Jennifer Lopez deliver incredible performances that bring layers of humanity to characters in an economic system and professions designed to dehumanize women and men. It is this very humanity that allows Wu to portray destiny with flaws that simultaneously inspire both sympathy and disgust with her choices. At the same time, Lopez portrays Ramona with a brilliant magnanimity that, combined with her breathtaking physicality, makes Ramona somehow superhuman. Wu and Lopez have turned in two of the best performances this year. Here's a review for Fifty Shades of Grey. It came out in 2015. I gave that one and a half stars out of five. I wrote, Everything in this movie is so banal that no amount of acting presence, which isn't much, can save it. Yeah, I know. Another hot take there. But here's something that I think I probably would go and revise. I saw John Wick, and I gave that only two out of five stars. I probably would give it three or three and a half now, but a movie that I would rate lower would be Terminator Genesis. I rated that three and a half stars out of five when it came out in 2015. I probably would give it two, maybe two and a half. As I'm looking through the reviews that I've written, I've noticed that there are entire franchises where the movies just seem to blend all into one. 
One of those is the Mission Impossible series. I can't even remember what the difference was between Fallout and Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation. A similar thing happened with the Fast and Furious franchise where, apart from Hobbs and Shaw, I can't remember what happened in Fast 5, 6, 7, 8, or 9. The funny thing is, though, is that I actually enjoyed them, and I even gave them pretty good ratings, but I just can't remember what happened when. I guess that's what happens when you watch a thousand movies in eight years. Sometimes I look at the work of directors and find them to be very inconsistent. Here's one for Exodus, Gods and Kings, directed by Ridley Scott. Did he do that? Yeah, he did. Ridley Scott directed Gods and Kings. I gave that one out of five stars. And yet, just a few months later, he would also do The Martian, and I gave that five out of five stars. Another director that kind of polarizes my opinions, or I find to be inconsistent in my enjoyment of his movies, is Wes Anderson. I gave Isle of Dogs from 2018 four and a half out of five stars. I gave Grand Budapest Hotel from 2014 three and a half. I gave Fantastic Mr. Fox from way back in 2009 two and a half out of five stars. Wow, look at this. John Wick Chapter 2, I gave two out of five. That really should be higher. On the other hand, a movie that I would probably rank a little lower today would be Ready Player One. I gave that four out of five. I might give it today a three and a half. Probably not go far down as to three because I really did enjoy it a lot. But four out of five not that high. So as the years have passed and I've been continuing to review and watch and rate and rant, I've noticed that there are some things that have stayed consistent and some things that have changed. Probably the biggest thing that has changed in the way art is presented over the past eight years is that victimhood mentality seems to have become the default lens through which to critique art and certain contributors certain contributors to the artistic world. It's not so much identity or identity politics that is driving the merits of a movie or any piece of art these days. It's how that identity can be used to capture a victimhood status. That victimhood status then gets played into power. And the more victimized one can claim to be in claiming a particular identity, the more powerful that person can be or a group can be, and therefore the more important or weighty the subject matter of a particular art form can have. That gets reflected in what is selected to be an Academy Award-nominated movie. And we can see that in the nominees over the past eight years. In 2013, the nominees were 12 Years a Slave, American Hustle, Captain Phillips, Dallas Buyers Club, Gravity, Her, Nebraska, Philomena, and The Wolf of Wall Street. 12 Years a Slave ended up winning. And then, most recently, 
the nominees were Nomadland, The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. In 2013, a third of those movies were about victimization and victimhood. Whereas in 2020, about half of those movies were about victimization or victimhood. Or at the very least, were uh, produced by or featured characters that could claim special status as part of a victimized group. And this lens of victimhood has been shaped mostly by American society. I would say probably because of the creative content that the United States produces, whether it's from Hollywood or from Broadway, whether it's movies or television. And these exports are seen throughout the world. And this lens now is affecting the mentalities of other nations, other movie industries such as the industry in the UK and in France, they've adopted this lens and you see that in the movies and TV that they produce. Now this, I'm rather ambivalent about this. On one hand, it's really great to see members of marginalized societies be given more of a voice, but at the other end, it seems to be the default way that these people are portrayed or at least the stories that are told about them. And we end up with a whole bunch of art that is just all about trauma and trauma bonding. And it's not particularly very healthy, in my opinion. I don't know if the movies are going to be changing their outlook. That, of course, all depends on whether society changes its outlook. Over the next few years, I'm hoping that this victimhood mentality will change because it gets predictable. It's not very challenging anymore. In fact, it seems to be the assumed way that one can be heard. It's become the assumed way that one can be heard so much that it has defined the current narrative. Art is supposed to challenge the narratives by adding to it. And simply reinforcing the narrative is just preaching to the choir. I'm looking forward to artistic contributions that challenge the current narrative by bringing to light who really is victimized and why. But above all, I want art to continue what it's been doing, which is provide entertainment. I can't wait to see what new movies, TV shows, books, video games, anything that's going to come out in these next few years. I want to consume it. I hope everyone else does too, to the best of their ability. And I'm going to continue to produce this content. As long as there is art to be made, there is going to be art for me to review and comment. And with that, that's it for this episode of ARC. Happy birthday, ARC. Happy eight years old. Remember to follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and other places at ARC Reviews. And don't forget to shop Amazon at ArtReviewAndCommentary.com and OmarLatiri.com. Thanks to everyone who has listened and contributed to this show over the past eight years. Thank you to Jordan Rose, Mark Ronick, Lowell Melser, Buzz Burbank, RJ Diaz. My name is Omar Latiri, and this is Art.
an ironic media production. Visit us at ironicmedia.com.